Welcome to Insight. This is Charlie. And with me today, as always, is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing quite well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Tonight, we are talking about the disappearance of Mary Boyle. Mary was just six years old when she disappeared without a trace from her grandparents' farm in Cachelard, which is outside of Ballyshannon in the county of Donegal in Ireland. I don't think we've covered a case out of Ireland before. Not a trace of her has ever been found. She is the longest missing and youngest missing person in Irish history, having disappeared 40 years ago. And I want to thank our researcher, Jessica Bentoncourt, for both her help with the research and the writing of this episode. And a thank you to Sinead for suggesting it. Mary Boyle was born on June 14th, 1970 in Birmingham, England. She was an identical twin with her sister Anne being born shortly after her. They were the second and third children of Charlie and Anne Boyle. They already had a young son named Patrick. This episode will get rather confusing with the mother and sister both having the name Anne, so we will try to remain very clear as to which one we're talking about. The parents, Charlie and Anne, were both from County Donegal in Ireland, though they met while they were both living in England. Charlie grew up on a small island, which had the last two families moved to the mainland in 1977. When Charlie was growing up, there were about a 100 people on the island, and one family he was related to was was the O'Donnells, and this includes the famous Irish singers Daniel and Margot. And in fact, their mother was one of the last ones to move off. Margot is going to come up later in the episode. Anne grew up in Cachelard, which is eight to nine kilometers outside of Ballyshannon. Cachelard is a rural area, like really rural, and the Gallagher home where Anne grew up was remote. There was only one other house nearby, and it wasn't even visible from the Gallagher farmhouse. When Mary and her twin Anne were two and Patrick was three, the Boyles left England. They were concerned about the environment they were raising their kids in. Birmingham is the second largest city in England after London. Big cities come with big city problems, crime and drugs, and Birmingham is also in the middle of the country. I grew up on a coast. Allie grew up on a coast. Charlie and Anne had grown up on the coast. Charlie had grown up on an island in the Atlantic Ocean. They missed the coast. They missed the sea. Charlie especially missed being around family and missed being in Ireland. Anne Sr. actually had wanted to take the family to America, but Charlie talked her into moving back home to Donegal in 1972. They would initially live on the island before they moved to the Burtonport area on the mainland. Charlie worked as a fisherman, as was his passion, and he also worked in a factory and found employment as a bus conductor. As often happens, twins are discussed in terms of how they compare to each other. Right or wrong, that's what happens And Mary's been described as the chattier of the two twins. She was very talkative, and she would just tell everyone everything that was going on. 
Anne was the more playful one. She would be out in the yard playing. Their mom tells about a place when they were younger that they liked to play, and there was a small path that went over a river, but it was really narrow. And Anne and Patrick would just tear across it. They would hardly even slow down. But Mary was the complete opposite. She would, like, get on her hands and knees and crawl across. She was really talkative and outgoing, but she was also very cautious. She liked to be inside doing household chores with her mom. She would just chatter away while the other kids were playing. But she didn't like to be left out or left behind, and she often wanted to be with her twin, so she would head out to play, even those times maybe she was inclined to stay inside. One of Anne Senior's brothers had died in 1966 in a tractor accident. On St. Patrick's Day 1977... The family were holding a memorial mass for him down where Anne had grown up in Cashlard, which is about an hour and a half drive south from where the Boyle family had settled. The day before, though, little Anne had gotten sick, so the family nearly cancelled the trip. When they woke up on St Patrick's Day and Anne was feeling better, they decided to go ahead and go. The plan was to drive down in time for mass, spend the night, and then head back home the next day after spending time with the family. At the time, in addition to Grandma and Grandpa Gallagher, Anne Senior's brother Jerry, his wife and his two sons also lived in the home. So it was quite tight quarters for the night with six adults and five children around. Unfortunately, the various accounts of what happened on the day of Mary's disappearance have some variations between people, and there are even variations between what one person says from one telling to the next – a lot of the variations over time can be counted for just that time. A lot happened in a short amount of time and memories can be altered over the years. But as best as we can tell, this is what happened. On March 18, the family had the family dinner in the early afternoon. After the meal, Jerry went about working on house maintenance type chores while the wives cleaned up. Charlie and his father-in-law talked and the kids went out to play. Little Anne remembers asking Mary if she wanted to go play with them and Mary said that she was going to stay inside and help. This was normal for Mary. She loved staying with the adults and chatting while doing chores. At some point while helping inside, Mary gave her mother a kiss and said that the kiss was to make up for not kissing her earlier in the day. That was the last time Anne Boyle saw her daughter. Around 4.20 in the afternoon, Mary's grandmother had said something like, are the kids okay? And that prompted Mary's mum to take a peek outside to check on them. She looked out and saw little Anne, her brother and their two cousins on a field, but she didn't see Mary. She called out asking where Mary was and one of the kids told her that she hadn't seen Mary since dinner, which wrapped up about 40 or 50 minutes before. Anne Senior immediately panicked. Though Charlie did tell her to calm down, surely Mary had to be somewhere else and that she'd be found quickly. But Anne said she knew something bad had happened, and her immediate thought was to check the well to see if Mary had perhaps fallen in. But she hadn't. She yelled Mary's name, but Mary never responded. She then told everyone that Mary was missing. According to one interview with Anne Boyle, Jerry, on hearing this, immediately took off down the lane that connected the Gallagher property to their neighbours, the Macaulays. But in another interview, she says he actually got into his car to head back to the Macaulays. But it makes more sense to me that he went on foot, and we'll see why in a minute. 
The rest of the family kept looking around the property and yelling for Mary. Jerry returned from going down to the Macaulay's, and that's when he told the family why he had run down the lane to the Macaulay's home from some reports. Other reports are vague about this and make it sound like he didn't explain why he went back towards the Macaulay's house until later. Regardless of when he said it, according to him, after dinner, he decided to head over to the Macaulay's to return a ladder he had borrowed, and this would be about 3.30. It was cumbersome to carry the ladder, but Mary decided to go with him for the walk, and she was, as usual, chattering away. Because the terrain was dotted with bogs and slurry pits, thick hedges, decrepit stone walls. The walk between the two houses could take only five minutes, but it's estimated that it probably took at least 15 minutes this day due to the muck and the fact that Jerry was carrying this big ladder. The path they took was not for cars. It was a footpath. It was just a lane that allowed the Gallaghers and the Macaulays to walk back and forth. Mary was walking along, eating either a bag of crisps or potato chips, or maybe she was eating some kind of sweets. Both have been reported, but I think the bag of crisps is the more accurate one. Jerry was carrying the ladder, so he couldn't help Mary climb over some of those short stone walls or go around or through the bogs. And eventually they came to a spot in the lane that was somewhat washed out. It There was a big mud puddle. It was probably six inches deep, 15 centimeters. Mary was wearing her Wellingtons, but she was a little girl. And she hesitated to walk through that deep of a muddy area. They were only a short distance from the Macaulay's, maybe 60 yards. But she decided to turn back and go back to her grandparents' house instead. There is a story that came out later with an investigator saying that Jerry had told her to go back, but that sounds like it's something he misremembered because in none of the statements early on did that ever come out, and Jerry's never said that he told her to turn back. She decided to turn back. The Macaulay home was visible from where they were. Her grandparents' house was not. And this was that hilly and rocky terrain she wasn't very familiar with the area they visited, but it was quite a distance, and she wasn't there often enough to really know the layout like her cousins would have, or like her mother who grew up there. But really, all she had to do was follow the lane, and she would find her grandparents' house again. And this is why we believe that Jerry went on foot when he learned Mary was not back at her grandparents' house. He was retracing the path to see if he could see any signs of Mary leaving the path or having wandered off or just signs that she wandered around. Taking the car would have meant he was out in the road and he wouldn't have been able to call out to Mary as he walked like you would imagine he would have done. When Jerry had taken this initial walk to the Macaulay's with the ladder, he stayed for about 20 minutes visiting with them before he turned back and walked back himself. He returned back to the home and he started working on a stone wall in the yard. He was out there for probably 10 minutes when he heard Mary was missing, and that's when he took off to look for her. Also, at some point in the early searches, and senior reports having gotten into the Boyle family car, which was a red Cortina, and driving around looking for Mary, 
with the thought that maybe she wandered out to the road. In considering the places that Mary could have wandered off to, Ansenia headed down to a lake near the house. It wasn't very near the house, but it was the biggest danger she could think of. Remember, this wasn't a well-populated area or an area with a lot of cars driving past. So stranger abductions are rare in general, but even more so incredibly remote areas like this one. She wasn't the only one with this idea. Jerry had already been out there calling for Mary. Now, it's possible Jerry and Anne or both called to each other across the lake to call the Garda, which is what the Irish police are called. Fishing in the lake were three men and asked if they'd seen a little girl, which they hadn't. She then asked them to call the Garda because the farmhouse didn't have a phone. There was a lot of panic searching, so the timeline is a little murky, but we have a phone record of this. By the time the men left the lake and got to the phone where they would call the Ballyshannon station, it was 6.30pm. Mary was last seen by the family around 3.30-3.45. She was last seen by her uncle closer to 4pm. So at the minimum, she'd been missing for two and a half hours before the police were called. In reading the thoughts of people who lived in rural Ireland, this doesn't raise any red flags for them. The family were actively looking for her, and it was a fair assumption on their part that she'd probably just wandered away. Calling the police for a six-year-old who wandered away and would surely show up would be making a fuss over nothing. These men were important witnesses because they were actually looking for cars while they were fishing. You see, they were poaching. Obviously, they wouldn't want to get caught fishing illegally, so they were on the lookout anyway. They were looking for cars coming by or even any people on foot. It's been reported that they saw nothing. However, in 2016, it was revealed by one of the men that he had actually seen a red Volkswagen Beetle speeding away about 10 minutes before Jerry arrived calling for Mary. Now, this is important, but it also feels a little out of place. If the call took place at 6.30, let's say Jerry and Anne made it to the lake around 6 and that's when they asked them to call... That means Mary and the abductor were still in the area for nearly two hours after she was last seen. Is it possible the car the fisherman had seen was actually Anne's red Cortina that she was driving around looking for Mary in? This would fit. It would also explain why the police didn't make note of this car sighting. The fisherman said the police told him that they already had a suspect and that's why they didn't write it down but I wonder if they also just assumed the red car was Anne's. When the police arrived to the property, they were not permitted into the Gallagher home right away because Anne Sr. was too upset. They were given the information the family had, and they immediately started the search. A helicopter came in early on from nearby Finner Camp Army Base. Given the remoteness of the area and the innocence of the era, they all believed, like Anne, that they were just looking for a missing child, and no one had really given much thought to abduction early on. The helicopter would be able to cover a lot of the rough terrain looking for Mary, who at the time was wearing a knit purple sweater and her Wellington boots, which were too big on her. The search would eventually grow to involve hundreds of people. There was a festival happening nearby, and the participants came to help the search. Officers searched the farmland and the bog, as well as civilian volunteers. By one news account, 500 people. 
though no precautions were taken to preserve any evidence that may have remained or in any way sealed off the area. Again, they were looking for a lost, wandering little girl, not evidence of a crime, so they didn't approach it that way. The search was called off when it was simply too dark to search any further. The rugged nature of this area made night searching just too hazardous for the searchers, who were largely volunteers and not trained. By the next morning, the idea that she had been taken had to be explored, and the search was expanded from the area surrounding the farmhouse to miles around Cachelard. Over the following days and weeks, the entire lake behind the grandparents' house was drained. Divers checked all nearby bodies of water. Trenches were dug with diggers. The bog was scoured by searchers using sticks to check into those deeper bog holes. Slurry pits were examined, and the surrounding countryside was poured over. For a reason that's not entirely clear to me, they were unable to get search dogs from Dublin to Cashelard in a reasonable amount of time, so they used local German shepherds, figuring, I guess, anything's better than nothing. German shepherds are good at this sort of work, but the training of these local dogs is unknown. But like I said, perhaps they felt it was better than nothing. No trace of Mary, her clothing, her hair ribbon, or her crisp bag even were located. Anne Sr. has said that a car was seen on the road near the farmhouse, but that sighting has not been confirmed, and no connection to that car was ever made to Mary's disappearance. We are going to talk more about the search for Mary after a word from a sponsor. You've heard me talk a lot about Blue Apron and basically what it is, that you get a box with pre-proportioned ingredients that you can cook in under 45 minutes. But I'm not sure I've really talked that much about the types of meals you get with Blue Apron. An upcoming meal is strip steaks with potato and spicy maple colored greens. So strip steak, potatoes, and greens sounds like a very traditional steakhouse favorite, but this twist with the chili-infused maple syrup on the collard greens takes it to a new level. So you can see the power of what food does, what different seasonings do. And with 12 new recipes each week, you're going to get to try a lot of these recipes. Another one I'm looking forward to is the soy-glazed Korean rice cakes with broccoli and soft-boiled eggs. I have to admit, I have never had Korean rice cakes before I started getting Blue Apron boxes. And now, anytime I see something with Korean rice cakes on the menu, I pick that meal. I'm trying new things. I'm trying old things with new ingredients. It's fantastic. If you're a new chef or someone like me who's been cooking and cooking for a family for you long enough, you don't need to know how long, you're going to love Blue Apron. Blue Apron is treating Insight listeners to $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com site. So you can check out this week's menu and get your $30 off at blueapron.com site. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. The area where Mary disappeared was generally heavily occupied in those days by Garda and military personnel. 
We're going to have a very short geography and history lesson here. Ballyshannon is close to the border between the Republic of Ireland, which is a sovereign nation, and Northern Ireland, which remains part of the United Kingdom. There are a lot of people who wanted a unified Ireland. And at that time, the paramilitary group called the Irish Republican Army that had emerged in the late 60s were extremely active in the area in 1977. The IRA activity was heavy along the border, obviously. So there were a lot of patrols and checkpoints in the area. With the security in place because of the IRA, it was easy to expand it into the search for Mary and the cars in the area that had been checked, they were able to go through them and rule them out. It wasn't an area where no cars were being checked. Cars were already being checked. So they could say which cars had little girls in them and rule them out, which was just maybe the only fortunate thing in the very unfortunate situation of the skirmishes near the border. For years, it was reported that the searches yielded nothing. When Mary went missing, she was wearing a purple cable-knit cardigan sweater, brown jeans and wellies that were at least one size too large. Mary's hair was tied back with a white and purple ribbon, but not so much as the hair ribbon was ever reported found. And then a 2013 expose by the Sunday World newspaper reported that witnesses who had participated in the 1977 search for Mary had at the time discovered disturbed soil and what appeared to be a 4 by 2 shallow grave. They even reported seeing a clump of hair about 100 metres from where Mary went missing. The searchers marked the location with a stick and went to the mobile unit being used by the investigating guard as a temporary search headquarters and they reported what they had found. Now it appears the Garda never examined the spot. Some members of the family, including singer Margot O'Donnell, they helped arrange a search of the Gallagher property using a geophysical company named ScheMTech, and that the company had located some anomalies in the soil. Before the ground could be dug up, police excavated the whole area using an excavator, which is not what would normally be used in a search for a decades-old shallow grave. It's kind of like using a tornado to blow out a match. If there's evidence to be found, doing this would have destroyed it. And then in November 2017, two men came forward claiming that when they were teenagers, they helped in the search for Mary on the day she disappeared. And while they were searching, they found a cardigan that supposedly matched the one Mary was wearing when she vanished near a lakeside about half a mile away from where Mary was last seen. They believe that the sweater was turned over at the time to the Ballyshannon Garda, though it's never been reported as being found. The Ballyshannon Garda said they were taking this new claim very seriously and they're working to determine what happened to the cardigan. Now, it could have been turned over and lost. It's possible a sweater was found, identified as not being related to the disappearance, and then discarded without a note of it being made in the file. One of these men have been interviewed, and on last report, the other one was going to be interviewed. Back with the original investigation, the bond between twins often fascinates people, and psychologists have even run experiments on identical twins to see how linked they are. And we all know the stories of 
identical twins raised separately who grow up to have the same job, marry a woman with the same name, and they drive the same car. Identical twins raised apart gives us a little bit of a glimpse into that debate of nature versus nurture. And the investigators would use this in an attempt to find some clues into Mary's disappearance. A few days after her disappearance, they told young Anne that they had an errand that they needed to run to the Macaulay's, and they set her down the lane, very closely supervised. And when they got to the point where Jerry said he last saw Mary, they told Anne to head back to her grandparents' farmhouse for some forgotten item. They did this all gently. They didn't give Anne the reason, of course. She was just a little girl. But they had hoped that by watching Anne head back by herself, she would do similar things that Mary would have done. Maybe she would get distracted by the same thing or make the same detour. At one point along the lane, Anne did seem to get a little disoriented on where she was and which direction she should go. But she quickly got back her sense of direction and she kept going and arrived back safely at her grandparents' house. So really, no new information was gathered with this. There have been several theories immediately after the disappearance and in the many years since of what happened to Mary Boyle. Obviously, the first theory was that she wandered off and perhaps she fell into the lake or had an accident. They were unable to find her in any body of water. Some theorize that Mary just fell into something like a deep bog or a slurry pit or a marsh and her body just has never been found. She was six years old. Perhaps she was clomping along in her two big boots and then she didn't see the water until it was too late. This would explain why no clothing, no boots, hair bows or anything has ever been found. A diver involved in the initial search said that the lakes and bogs were searched, but that the search wasn't terribly organised. So it's possible that while the search was fairly thorough, areas could have been missed. Another early theory, and one that Anne Senior seemed to lean towards, especially early on, was that Mary wandered from the lane to the road and a stranger passing through picked her up. Anne believed, or at least she wanted to believe, it was someone who saw an adorable little girl and they wanted to take her home and raise her as their own. As for why Mary would have left the lane to go to the road, the day before they had been in town at church and they went to the shops. Mary had seen sweets and toys, and in that impulsive way six-year-olds can be, perhaps she thought she could just walk into town and look at the shops again. Many dismiss this, though, with the military checkpoints and patrols, it would really be a risky crime to pick up a child in a rural area and take off and just hope that your car wasn't checked at the checkpoint. But because of how long it took to start the search, this really can't be ruled out. This case brought back to mind the abduction and murder of 10-year-old Bernadette Connolly from 1970. Bernie lived a 45-minute ride away from Castlelard. One afternoon, her mother sent her on an errand to pick up some groceries for afternoon tea. Bernie left on her bicycle and carried her money in her mother's purse. After she was gone longer than expected, her sister was sent along to see what was taking her so long in getting home. 
Her sister only found her bicycle and their mother's purse thrown off the pathway. The money from the shop was still inside the purse. In the sad mirror of Mary's disappearance, the Connolly family had also lived in Birmingham but had moved back home to Ireland because they felt it was a safer place to raise their family. Bernie's body was found over three months later near a bog drain. It was 15 miles from where her bike was found. Child abductions in Ireland were incredibly rare, so the Garda had to wonder if the same person was responsible for both disappearances. It's unclear if it went much further than wondering and if they tried to track down the movements of people between the two locations. The crimes were seven years apart, so it would likely have been a long shot at that point anyway in the non-digital age. Today, so much is recorded and stored for years, but in the 1970s, it wasn't as easy as digging up old cell phone records or credit card receipts to find links. There were six men known to police as sex offenders in the area. None had abducted anyone, and their crimes were generally against grown women, not children. But they were immediately investigated, of course, and all were ruled out. In later years, they would pursue another known sex offender, a Scottish man who abducted and murdered children. His name was Robert Black. In 1990, Black was arrested after he was caught abducting a six-year-old girl in full view of her neighbor. Fortunately, he and his van were found while the girl was still alive, but unfortunately, he did have time to assault her. While Black claimed he was going to let the girl go, the details of the abduction were similar to other unsolved child abductions and murders. So after a thorough investigation, Black was eventually convicted of four murders of girls ages 5 to 11, so right there in that same age range as Mary. The earliest known murder was 1981, though he had arrests for sex crimes going all the way back to the early 1960s. So what are the odds he was a sexual predator for 20 years before he ever escalated to murder? And the police, you know, they do suspect he had other victims before 1981. One of the problems with linking Black to any of these crimes or to figure out what other crimes he may have been connected to, is that it was his job to be a distance delivery man. And this gave him access to a van that blended into the surroundings. And it gave him an excuse to travel all across the UK. He would take his van across to Northern Ireland on the ferry to do deliveries there. In 1977, when Mary disappeared, he was very likely in Northern Ireland. It was through an investigation that the Garda were able to say it's possible he was in the area. He was very, he was almost definitely in the area that month. Whether or not he was there that exact day, we don't know. And there is no evidence he ever crossed the border into the Republic of Ireland. But if he was driving down the rural road in Cachelard that day, he surely would not have hesitated to pick up a young girl from the side of the road. That was his M.O. His job as a driver across the U.K. would have allowed him an easy way to leave with Mary and take her pretty far from home. With the security at the border, 
I don't know that he would have risked taking her out of the Republic of Ireland, but he could have taken her pretty much anywhere else in Ireland. If Black was involved, he took that secret with him when he died of a heart attack in prison in 2016. And it's a good point there that he could have taken her anywhere in Ireland or even the next town over. From what I can understand, the search was only in the immediate area as far as lakes and the bogs go. Is that correct? Yes. As yeah. far as I know, they did do a search into the towns around Cachelard, but that was after they didn't find her in Cachelard. So there would have been time that had lapsed. Next, we will be talking about an unnamed suspect and the reason he remains unnamed after one more break to hear about one of our sponsors. Are you hiring? Posting your position to job sites and waiting and waiting for the right people to see it? There has to be something better than that. And ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive. So you are never going to miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash site. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash site. ZipRecruiter.com slash site. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. As with any case like this, looking at the family and immediate neighbours is important. The Garda looked at the movements of the various family members and accounted for them. Though Jerry was the last one to see Mary, it appears his timeline was accounted for with statements by the neighbours and family. It has been alleged by two of the investigators that a phone call came to the station from a local politician. This politician told them to drop any inquiry into a particular person close to the family as a person of interest or suspect. We need to note that neither of these men took the call and the person who did take the call has not come forward to confirm this story. Until last year, no one would publicly name the politician and they still won't name the person close to the family who was not meant to be investigated. The reason is that Ireland has extremely strict libel laws and it's actually not that hard to win damages in court. The criteria is similar between Ireland and the US – The statement has to be false and it has to be damaging to the reputation of the person it's referring to. Except in the US, the burden is on the plaintiff to prove the statement is false. In Ireland, the burden is on defendant to prove that it's true. So let's say I'm in Ireland and I say that Allie murdered someone and she sues me. I have to prove that she likely did, in fact, kill that person. But in the US, she would have to prove that she likely didn't kill that person. That shifting of burden 
makes a huge difference both in the likelihood of success of the lawsuit and even just having the motivation to bring one. It's a lot harder to bring a suit when you know the burden of proof is largely on you. People won't even say neighbor or family member when they're discussing this person because even that is too identifying in Ireland. They'll only say that it was someone who was known to Mary who was close to the family. If one person reads your description of someone and knows who you're talking about in Ireland, you can be sued. In one case, a former Garda commissioner was awarded 30,000 pounds in damages for the use of a graphic on TV that featured his ears. The TV program was about corruption. His ears were considered identifiable in the Irish courts. So you can see why nobody's naming who this person is, even though several people believe they know who it is. The politician who allegedly made this phone call, he has been named because he died last year, and you cannot legally defame a deceased person. And it has been said that it was Sean McEniff who made the call. He cannot defend himself now, but I will note that he denied he was that politician before he died. We have to know the person, quote, close to the family who was not to be investigated must still be alive since no one will say who it is. So that rules out the grandfather who has passed away a year after Mary disappeared, and also Mary's father, Charlie. He died in a fishing accident in 2005. So we know they're not the, quote, person close to the family. I can't see the motivation to protect this unnamed person. It said he belonged to the same political party as Sean McEniff, but unless he was a massive financier of the campaigns or an up-and-coming politician, I don't know why someone would protect him, though in the reading I did, it seems like this was somewhat common in the area, that there was that kind of protection. Perhaps time will come when he is named and more information in regards to why he was protected could be revealed. I mean, it's possible not much is being said about the connection to the party or to Sean McKenniff because it would just be too identifying to stay on the clear side of these libel laws. Members of the family, including Mary's twin Anne and cousin Margot O'Donnell, believe they know who the killer is and that it is this unnamed person close to the family. Two of the original investigators on the case also believe they know who it is and felt they were close to getting this person to make a confession. That's when they were told to back off both him and his family. Neither detective believes that any cover-up came from within the Garda, and both later gave statements to the press that they did not stop investigating the case because of the phone call, but they did stop pursuing that one suspect and his family. Both Anne and Margot say that a woman came to them and told them that she knows this unnamed person had something to do with Mary's disappearance and murder, but she has not gone to the authorities or made any public statements herself. A relative of the unknown man also allegedly went to the Garda and broke down saying he believed this man is the culprit. Margot and Anne further claim that there is evidence being withheld by the police, but there is no insight given as to what this evidence could be. 
But in any open investigation, yes, there is going to be evidence held back from the police. We know that, that they don't reveal every detail in open investigations because it can compromise any future court cases. Anne believes the motivation behind the murder of her sister Mary was to cover up sexual abuse. She said Mary would never had stayed quiet and had the person attempted or succeeded in assaulting her, she would have told someone. This is just a theory, though, because there isn't any evidence offered of any ongoing abuse or that this unnamed person went on to sexually abuse anyone else. We haven't talked much about Anne Senior's thoughts on this anymore. She has clung to the hope that Mary was picked up and raised by another family without so much as Mary's hair ribbon being found. She she held on to that hope that Mary was still alive. But she said that if Mary is dead, she wants to know, and she wants to give her a proper Christian burial. Anne Sr. does not seem to have the same commitment these days to the case as Margot and Mary's sister Anne seem to have. For a while, she too chased down every lead. She stated in an interview that she was contacted by a psychic from County Cork who told her that Mary was in Scotland. So Anne Boyle looked in Scotland. Someone told her Mary was in a Belfast mine shaft, and that was looked into. Anne seems to now believe that Mary is dead, but she kind of goes back and forth in interviews. She seems to still be clinging to that hope. She and her daughter Anne have diverged in their manner of approaching the case to the point that they are now estranged. Anne Sr. has gone so far as to suggest that her daughter Anne should address her concerns more privately and even sent her a cease and desist letter. And for her part, the daughter Anne says that her mother is obstructing this quest for justice for Mary. She has repeated her request for an inquest, but her mother has stated publicly that she doesn't want an inquest into Mary's case, even after she herself is dead. And that's right, we are 40 going on 41 years from this case, and no inquest has ever been called. The request for an inquest by Mary's twin Anne just continue to be denied. She's not the next of kin, and it's been said that an inquest would be detrimental to Anne Sr.'s well-being. Without evidence that Mary is dead, it's very unlikely that they'll have an inquest against Anne Senior's wishes. In 2014, an arrest was made in the case. Anne Senior knew it was coming. She was informed of it. But this must have been after the estrangement with her daughter Anne because the younger Anne told the media she was not informed in advance and she was deeply shocked. The man arrested was not the man she believes was involved. The man arrested has come forward and named himself. Then 63, Brian McMahon was serving time for indecent assault of two boys. This conviction came from accusations against him from his 10 years, some 40 years previous. When Anne went missing, he had been a soldier stationed at nearby Ballyshannon, which is the same instalment that sent out the search helicopter. According to Anne Senior, she knew McMahon. He grew up in the area and was a foster child. He has said he was abused while in care. As to why he was arrested in 2014, police attributed this to unspecified new evidence. It does not appear he was ever on their radar at the time of Mary's disappearance. However, he was released the next day and no charges were filed. 
They were only able to hold him for 24 hours for questioning and there simply must not have been enough evidence. McMahon maintains his innocence in the Mary Boyle case. He says that while he may have been stationed relatively nearby, he didn't know Mary Boyle and he had no car with which he could have taken her. He is considering legal action against the Garda for wrongful arrest. Margot and Anne attempted to bring Mary's case to the Garda in Dublin in 2015. They made accusatory statements to the police. They're along the lines of what we've talked about with the cover-up and that they were being brushed off when they asked for a continued investigation in Ballyshannon. They said their statements were being shoved under the rug. When nothing came of this, they reached out to Northern Ireland Parliament, along with a group of other families who also suffered missing loved ones and alleged police corruption. Anne has continued to travel to seek help in the case. She has gone to Brussels, Westminster, and even Washington, D.C., and she even received a pledge of support from a Pennsylvania congressman named Brendan Doyle, who is not a relation, but his father is from Donegal. In late 2015, Anne had requested that inquest. She also asked for additional ground searches, and all of those were denied. In 2016, Anne said she was planning to go ahead and sue the Irish police and the government in the Court of Human Rights to demand justice for Mary. In April 2016, Dublin's representative in the European Parliament in Brussels made a speech to the body to the effect that there was this suspect. He was still living in Donegal. She put the politician's alleged phone call on the record in that meeting, and she requested an inquest, and a petition was signed by many people demanding one. The petition was sent to Ireland's Minister for Justice, but it's not her authority to force an inquest, and if the local coroner wouldn't do it, then she couldn't compel him to. She also stated that it's her understanding from the Garda that they've been working on this case, a fresh investigation into it, since 2011. In 2016, a documentary, which is available on YouTube and is called Mary Boyle, The Untold Story. It is by an investigative journalist who is somewhat controversial for her willingness to push boundaries. Like we said, Ireland has very strict libel laws, which in some ways limits the press in ways that they're not limited here in the U.S. where they can just name whoever they want. Right after this went up in YouTube with a lot of the statements from Margot and Anne alleging corruption, the Garda announced that they were going to launch yet another fresh investigation into this disappearance. But there's a general distrust of the previous investigations, so a lot of people don't seem to have much hope that this will change anything. Even if they go in there with good intentions, 40, 41 years have passed, and there's only so much they can do. Honestly, with the lack of care in some aspects of the Gala's investigation at the time and probably since, with the protection of this suspect or personal interest or whatever he's being referred to, where there seems to be certainty with the family that this person may be involved, but if a proper investigation isn't done, then how can we know with 100% certainty that he wasn't involved? How can that line of focus in the investigation close and refocus elsewhere? 
I really don't see this case ever being solved. I really feel for Mary because she's the one let down by the system here, and I'm sure she isn't the only one. I also don't see there being a great likelihood of this being solved, because if it was someone close to the family, if it was someone who lived in the area, even if that supposed possible grave is still there, the truth is they likely moved Mary by now. No search is really going to show where she is if that is what happened to her. And like you said, Mary is the one being let down, and that's what Anne, her sister, keeps bringing up and why she feels this should be in the human rights court, that Mary has a human right to justice. 